I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And policing, as both an action and a concept, has been on the front page and at the front of many of our minds over the last several years, as we've re-examined our assumptions around its utility and purpose. When is law enforcement actually needed? When does it go too far? And what does good policing look like? Our guest this week has combined his academic training with on-the-ground experience to try and answer that very question. Peter Moskos is a professor in the Department of Law, Police Science, and Criminal Justice Administration at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is the director of John Jay College's NYPD Executive Master's Program and the author of three books, which have earned him recognition as one of Atlantic Magazine's Brave Thinkers of the Year. He was also published in the Washington Post, Washington Monthly, The New York Times, CNN, Pacific Standard, Slate, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and his blog, copinthehood.com. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to start off with your book, Cop in the Hood, which kind of first introduced you to the publishing scene and I think what started to, at least to the public, make your name as someone who writes in depth on policing, its problems and potential solutions. I'd like to quote a bit from the opening to kind of start us off. Quote, I do not come from a family of police. None of my friends were police. My parents were teachers. I had few dealings with police. I was part of the liberal upper middle class raised with the kindly lessons of officer friendly. As a high school student, the few times I could have gotten in trouble, Chicago police officers always cut me a break. I'm very polite and white, <laughs> end quote. And a lot of that, aside from the Chicago part, mirrors a lot of my own upbringing. My relationship with the police was usually revolving around frustration at a speeding ticket, which I usually deserved. But growing up in a suburb, my interactions with police officers were usually pretty benign. Now, usually how a memoir-style book happens is a person will do the job and then upon reflection decide they want to write about it. But in your case, you wanted to write a book about policing, and so you became a police officer so you could write it. <laughs> you were studying sociology as a graduate student at Harvard at the time you made your decision. Can you sort of walk our audience through how you ultimately decided to join the Baltimore Police Academy? As you said, was a graduate student at Harvard and wanted to study something urban-related, which in sociology usually means uh, race or education or immigration. But this, so I started graduate school in 1995, and this was when the big New York City crime drop was really just, it was in full gear. You know, murders, I think at that point, had dropped nearly 50%. They would go on to drop 80%, even a bit more. And in the few readings that covered crime, you had a lot of academics buying a party line that really I think originated in the 1968 Kerner Commission. I'm sure it has some threads before that. But the idea that police don't prevent crime, that they can't prevent crime, that crime is an inevitable effect of an unjust society, you know, the root causes argument. So <laughs> I'm reading these esteemed figures who say there's no way that violence will go down if we don't fix society. And I'm thinking, wow, violence is way down and we haven't fixed society. They're wrong. They're fundamentally wrong about this major point. And I thought, you know, if the leading figures in a field are wrong, it was a Thomas Kuhnsian scientific revolution moment. I said, this is probably a good field to get into. Something's going to change here. So I became interested in it and went to Baltimore. I was not planning on becoming a cop. 
I'll gloss over it for now. It's it's uh, it's in the book, but through various twists of fate, primarily Baltimore saying that I couldn't stay there, the Baltimore Police Department, that is. I did go uh, through the hiring process and the academy and became a cop. I was there. Then the question is, how long do you stay? My original plan was to stay for one year. I ended up staying just under two. I stayed till I got civil service protection, and that, that seems sort of somehow like a good time. Like, once you can't fire me, I quit. Some ways I wish I stayed longer. I would have learned more, but I also had to go back to school so I could finish school and get my PhD. So uh, I quit in 2001. I finished uh, Harvard in 2004, and I've been a professor ever since. That view that you mentioned that was kind of popularized, if I understand you correctly, in the 1960s, that policing can't be improved. It is only society that can be improved. And without improving society, that police are just kind of doomed to basically high crime rates. It, It seems like such an intensely fatalistic view of society and a complete misreading of the importance of good policing, which you discuss in your book and elsewhere. I mean, perhaps much of society doesn't need to be fixed. Maybe it's our criminal justice system and how it interacts with the public that is the problem. I I just, I'm actually shocked that any other view besides that would have gained so much academic esteem. Why do you think that is? It's in the ascendancy now. Uh, In many ways, I feel we're going back to sort of a, in terms of theories of police and crime and society, we're going back to a late 60s, 1970s perspective, which is police are a problem to be contained, serve a function of racial oppression. And uh, as such, the, the less police presence is felt, the better it is for the oppressed. That is not of commonly held view among the oppressed, by and large. Uh, it's sort of a paternalistic view. Society does have big problems. They need to be disassociated somewhat from policing, not because, you know, those other issues I think are more important, honestly. You know, maybe I went into the wrong field and I should have studied poverty and race relations more. But first of all, I don't have faith we're going to fix society anytime soon. We have to deal with the cards as they're dealt to some extent. Other people, please, you know, shuffle a fair deck or whatever. But it's not my professional field. I focus on policing. In saying that, you know, I want to figure out what police can do to help communities, to help individuals, and to maintain order and public safety. It's a fundamental role. And um, I think, as we've seen in the past few years, as police recede from filling that role, it either goes unfilled or other groups that are worse than cops fill it. You know, this is where we are today. I took a class from George Kelling, who among other things, is known for uh, his Broken Windows article that he wrote with uh, James Q. Wilson in the Atlantic magazine in 1982. The term's almost toxic now, but it's, it's a lot of it is common sense. No, he didn't want to lock everyone up. Yes, he was an explicit opponent of zero-tolerance policing. But I got an A in the class, and I think I got an A because after we read his piece, I said, this sounds very much like Jane Jacobs. And his eyes lit up. And he liked me from that moment on. And he said, yes, I'm just rehashing Jane Jake argument from the safety and the side of one chapter of Death and Life of Great American Cities. He said, this isn't, to that extent, this is not a new idea at all. I'm just fleshing it out and, and, and focusing it on public safety. If we don't acknowledge that people are influenced by their environment, and the weird thing about root causes, of course, is it is based on the idea that the environment matters. Of course, the environment matters. But if we can't give people a basic level of public safety, if we can't reduce public fear, we fail the society. I don't think we can fix these other problems in neighborhoods where residents do hear gunshots almost nightly. If you're afraid to leave the house, (laughs) 
it, it doesn't matter if your grocery store has fresh produce because you're not going there. First, we have to make sure people aren't afraid of getting killed. Then other programs have a chance of success. Policing in some ways is a lot. We can do it now. We're not talking about generational fixes. When um, Bill Bratton took over the NYPD and very much followed Kelling's philosophy, he said he was going to bring down violent crime 15% in the first year. That was actually, in hindsight at least, but even at the time, a revolutionary moment because people mocked him for it because, of course, everybody supposedly knew that cops couldn't bring down crime. And he exceeded that, and he exceeded that every year. But in doing so, and the significant part isn't just that violence was reduced and lives were saved, though that's pretty important, but he said, it's my responsibility. I am the police commissioner. Hold me accountable for crime. That was the first time that it happened in decades. That is what I've seen, and that's the worst part of what I've seen in the past few years, are mayors and police chiefs basically saying, oh, yeah, shootings are double, but what can you do? Must be COVID, must be economic anxiety. No, no, those play some role. It's not that they're unimportant, but no, it's policing. And if, and if our political leaders don't accept accountability for violence in their jurisdiction, we're doomed because they're passing the buck, but no one's receiving that buck. Yeah, and I think it's really important to hammer that point. The idea that there are societal problems that need fixing, especially ones around, in at least in America anyway, race, right? And our long history with racism and racial injustice, of course, those problems are in many ways endemic in our society and specifically in a lot of our poorest neighborhoods. It's impossible not to see the echoes of a racially unjust system in some of our poorest neighborhoods like the ones that, that you policed when you were a police officer for two years. It's actually infuriating, this idea that until society is fixed, you cannot count on me as a police chief or as a police officer to reduce crime because it's out of my hands. Seems like such an incredible dereliction of duty that is masked under the guise of a social justice lens. And they're using it as an almost excuse to abandon the very people, the most vulnerable people that they are charged with protecting. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but in your, your afterward in Cop in the Hood on Policing Green, you talk about some experiences you had when you were walking the beat, so to speak, and the kind of change that that had on how you were perceived by both potential suspects and on the people in those neighborhoods who were counting on you for protection. And the idea that we'll just pull back and there's nothing we can do. <laughs> I wish I had a more articulate question to answer there, but I really just had to put a pin on that because it, it's, it's so infuriating to hear. You know, when I run out of things to say, which isn't very often, but I just turn to foot patrol. It's sort of my, I don't know, my little pet project, my fetish. I think it's great. Cops need to get out of their cars. Rapid response is vastly overrated. Everyone who can pick up the phone and dial 911 perhaps doesn't deserve or need a police response. That part's absolutely true. When you're in a police car, you're not policing. Now, I'm talking about urban environments here. I should say more densely populated environments. My rule of thumb is that if the mail carrier is delivering mail with a cart on foot, then police should be walking foot. If no one's, if there are no sidewalks, there's no point in having cops walking around. But cops got placed in a police car is almost by a historical and technological accident. It wasn't part of, it wasn't, well, it was a plan. It wasn't a good plan. Policing happens when cops are out of cars. Interactions with the public happen when cops are out of cars. Deterrence can happen with cops are out of cars, but probably, I don't want to, I don't know if it's the most important thing, but an extremely important thing is just those casual interactions between police officers and residents of a community that don't involve crisis, whether it's saying hello to people, whether it's smiling at kids, whether it's talking to store owners, 
that is how police gain information from the community. That is how the community sees police officers as as human beings who care. Not to mention just for the psychological sanity of police officers, cops need to see a neighborhood when it's functioning. Even dysfunctional neighborhoods function most of the time. Police need to see that, and, and you can develop a very skewed, a very unhealthy attitude if all you see is everybody at their, at their, at their worst. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and you're touching on something that we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a minute, which is how black police officers and white police officers will view these majority black and poor neighborhoods fundamentally differently, oftentimes because black police officers come from these very neighborhoods. And so they have a more holistic view of them. But to get back to, I suppose you could say, your biography when it comes to your time as a police officer, there was a discussion you had last year with Princeton sociology professor Frederick Weary. You say that while police academies often get the technical and physical aspects of training right, the literal doing of police work, so to speak, the kind of uniformity that benefits that technical training, like how to fire a gun, how to use modified judo against a suspect, it doesn't really benefit officers as a holistic pedagogical approach to learning about policing. And a recurring theme in your work seems to be that for police officers to be truly effective at their job, there are a lot of unmeasurables that the police academy doesn't really allow potential officers to explore. And I'd love you to be able to, to speak on that a little more. There's so many problems with the police academy. I don't know if I'm going to answer your question. You can <laughs> refocus me later if need be. But the academy by design is a sort of segregating environment. That's problem number one. There are many more. And of course, you know, there are many different academies. I can only go by my experience and what I've seen in a few other places, but there are a lot of similarities in the police academy environment. One problem is uh, most academies, not all, aren't to, don't weed anybody out. Their job is to get people through. Their job is to make people qualified. That's unfortunate because I don't, wouldn't want to put a number on it, but I'm thinking the bottom five, 10% of any group of people probably should be weeded out. But cops primarily learn on the street. And I, think because it's inevitable, it needs to be embraced. It might not be ideal, but that's where cops really do learn how to police. Yes, there's a certain, you know, you do learn some technical aspects that are essential, legal aspects that are also essential. In theory, you learn some sort of sociology, but at least when I did it, that was humorously poorly taught. The emphasis on the academy is not generally, it's considered work and not school. Some of it, you know, is their basic work skills, actually, the academy teaches. I mock them in the book, but actually showing up to work on time and, and shining your shoes is sort of important, at least the first part. But, you know, for some people who have not had uh, that professional work experience, I was 29 years old when I was in the academy, so I was older than most, but not the oldest person by far. But, you know, if you're just out of high school, most police departments don't have a college uh, requirement. I don't know. So some of it is, you know, you do need to have instilled a certain work ethic. The question is, no one is, is there's no, and there's no good answer. This is what should cops learn in the academy? You know, I think they should learn the role of police in society historically, both for good and for bad. But it's important that that bad part gets taught as well, because cops face the brunt on that on the street. You know, why do people hate us? Well, historically, our track record is mixed, to put it mildly. You know, when there was legal segregation and it wasn't that long ago, it's still in living memory of people that matters. So cops need to learn that. The problem is so much of the academy training is sort of a legalistic 
cover your ass mode. This is for from the police organization's perspective, where they're checking boxes of having met certain state mandated requirements and so on. I think that that's part of a recurring theme of kind of the modern police department's obsession with stats, right? This idea that the only and most important things are the things that are truly measurable, not the things that aren't, which in many ways leaves a huge gap, right? Because oftentimes the things that you can't really measure, like how a community feels about the police officers that are walking around its neighborhood, are often almost as, if not more important than the stats in terms of how many arrests you're making, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I like data. I'm pretty good with stats and numbers, but I don't know how you reconcile that with the fact that the job fundamentally, I think, is unquantifiable. Um, It is as much, if not more, art than science. If everything goes well, you might not produce any quantifiable stats, though in a way you could quantify that. I mean, there are ways to get around it, but how do you quantify human interactions? Yeah, you can you can count them. At some point, it's, I almost think it's a fool's error. Now, that said, I, I don't advocate not keeping track of these things, but who makes a good cop? I would ask non-criminal residents, or hell, ask the criminals who's a good cop. They can probably tell you as well. Ask the person's coworkers and supervisors and underlings. They'll tell you who's a good cop. That's not always the person that is quantifiably the best, but they know when that person shows up on a scene, things will get better rather than worse. That's a very important quality to have as a police officer, and you know not all cops have it. And that goes back to recruiting and training. Putting more money into the into a system doesn't necessarily guarantee better results, but at some point you do get what you pay for. There is a correlation there. So we have to treat the job as more professional. And, you know, some there's a huge range of salaries and so on. But, you know, the departments that pay poorly um, need to pay better. It would be nice if departments weren't poaching from other departments, things like that. Those are real consequences. But I don't know, you know, I, I ultimately I can't answer sort of the questions that are floating around uh, because I don't know if they're answerable. We can make things better and we need to, but it's sort of that small incremental improvement that's not very popular right now. Moving on from the police academy, there's kind of a classic critique about policing as it relates to poor and oftentimes majority black neighborhoods. And that's that these neighborhoods are both under and over policed simultaneously. And this seems to be a recurring theme throughout your book, Cop in the Hood. You say that while, quote, high crime areas are where the best and most experienced patrol officers are needed, the enthusiasm of the young is no substitute of the old. And the -the on-the-job education of police officers is not all productive. Criminals don't want to work with the police any more than police want to coddle criminals. But when drug laws criminalize so many, the police and the public inevitably coexist in barely disguised mutual apathy. Young police learn that the job has more to do with public control than with public service, end quote. The two things that stuck out to me there, Peter, is public control versus public service and how those two things are being conflated when it comes to how police officers are interacting with the communities that they are charged to serve. And this happens with teaching as well. I have friends who are are public school teachers, and oftentimes the youngest and greenest teachers are sent to the areas that are in most need of more senior and experienced teachers. And oftentimes putting someone who has never taught a class before into a classroom that is desperate for very quality teachers often leads to a lot of mismatch in in which everyone gets frustrated. Are there any efforts either in Baltimore or New York or other major cities um, where they're trying to turn that around and put more experienced police officers in communities that need them? Or are they still caught in this cycle of putting the, to kind of paraphrase something you said, the kind of least desired neighborhoods for police officers to work in 
are they still putting the greenest police officers there or, or is there has there been a change no there hasn't been a change from an organizational standpoint you know what do you do when people want to get out of those they've done their you know they've done their time there you can't keep someone in the same place for their entire career against their will at least but the department could and i do think there's some advantage to learning quickly on the job but again that's not without its risks and foibles then there's the other thing is often you have specialized units that work in high crime areas and that's also generally good if you know they go after people with guns but it's a mixed blessing as well because those units tend to attract the more aggressive cops potentially cowboy cops you know it's a heavy ask to, to, to ask men and women to do what they do in those units which is focus on armed criminals who arm shooters but they're not known generally for their you know gentle public demeanor so you've got a little of both where you have a, a more seasoned aggressive officers and then cops straight out of the academy that's unfortunate. The department could incentivize officers to work in these districts by staffing them more through better equipment, even paying more. Some a lot of cops don't want to work in really slow districts either because it's boring. Like it's hard to um, pay officers at a different rate because unions will complain. Even if you're offering to pay more, unions generally are against pay differentials. There, so there are lots of sort of administrative problems, but those could be overcome. It's easier to say it than, than simply to do it. So much just depends on the individual human being that is the police officer. And different officers have different talents. That's why, you know, if you work in a squad, ideally it's a good team. You don't want all the officers to have the same skill sets. I was generally good at talking to people, generally good at calming down situations. That said, there were other things that other cops did better than me in terms of tactics. Sometimes recognizing danger and, you know, or seeing the true situation based on, on their experience and situa situational awareness. So you want a good mix in any place, but you just you have to be aware of the fact that when you're, when, when you're putting rookie cops in high crime neighborhoods, they're going to make mistakes. I'm not talking about malicious criminal mistakes. I'm talking about just well-intentioned, oh, huh, I did that. It didn't work. Maybe next time I should try something else, that kind of mistake. Going back to your critiques of the academy and how so much of its focus is on the technical and physical training, right? Which is, of course, important. You don't want someone who doesn't know how to fire a gun to be a police officer. That much is true. But when officers are totally green, having mostly only learned the technical and physical aspects of the job, but lacking through lack of exposure and time, the skills needed to de-escalate and diffuse high tension situations and make lasting connections with community members that they've only just begun to know. You know, I'm just an average guy in, from Los Angeles who has some relatives in policing, but I have no experience policing. But this stuff, just hearing you say it seems rather obvious. The, the places that have the most problems, you would feel like you'd want to send the most deft, experienced and calm officers. But it seems like police stations are trapped in this cycle of sending the greenest people to the places that need the most senior officers. Here's why it's complicated. Um, first of all, I would say that skill isn't in defusing high tense situations. It's, it's in defusing low tense situations. That's the far more common thing. That's the one that can go in either direction. It gets complicated because cops get burnt out. You want cops that are still eager and willing to work. There's certain parts of the job that really are a big ask, you know, running towards gunshots. Why in the world would you do that as a rational person? You know, one of the cops I worked with who was in the book, he retired a while back, went out on medical actually, but he, before I was 
there, he chased someone into an alley and he was losing the fight and the guy um, had a gun and pulled the trigger and the gun didn't fire. He never ran into an alley after that. So it's not worth it. He said it was psychologically damaging. There's only so much sort of normal human beings can take at some point, especially then if it's combined with what you see as uh, organizational apathy towards your well-being and then society now says you're the bad guy. At some point, you just go, fuck it. I give up. I'm just going to sit here and do the minimum I can. And when cops want to do the minimum, it's amazing what they're able to not do. So it's not fair to keep someone in that environment till they're damaged goods. So you do need to get people out of there at some point. Now, different cops handle in different ways. One of the guys I worked with had been a cop longer than I'd been alive. Uh, He ended up retiring with 33 years on. He also didn't chase anybody, but my God, he was a good cop. The change in policing he, he could see and describe and his ability to talk to people, to resolve situations. It was Yoda like sometimes the magic he could work on people. His stats were not good, by the way. He never arrested anybody, often because he didn't have to. Now he was recognized, you know, everyone knew he was a good cop. He was looked up to. And how did he manage to do that? Even he didn't know. But he just he just sort of went along and, and thirty-three years later he retired. Yeah. The idea that he didn't arrest anybody because he didn't have to, I think is pretty key, right? You know, the way it works too, I should say, if there's an arrest situation, you would simply, you know, there's more than, you don't arrest anybody alone. So often there's a choice of who takes it. The other officer would take the arrest and the resultant court dates and things like that. So it wasn't that he made no arrest, but certainly if he showed up first, the odds of someone being arrested went down. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And it seems to me just off the cuff here, that a good potential solution to the problem of burnout and how sometimes you need those youngest, greenest police officers to do a lot of the a lot of the work that can kind of grind on you after a couple of years would be to, and maybe I'm saying something that is obvious and probably the police departments are already instituting, is to combine kind of a more senior officer like the one that you knew who served 33 years on a foot patrol with a younger officer and if it comes down to a chase or something, the younger officer being sprier and quicker <laughs> and probably more anxious to get into the fray can do the chase. But to have the senior officer with them as they're learning the community, as they're patrolling the block, as they're meeting the residents who they count on for communication and trust, it seems like having that senior officer with the younger one, at least for those moments, would be instrumental. And I don't fully under, despite my experience and connections. I don't understand why this kind of stuff isn't tried. You know, there's all this talk about re-envisioning policing and mostly just makes me roll my eyes because there's usually no substance behind it. But at some point, given the fact there are something like 16,000 police departments, granted most are incredibly small, it's amazing how little creativity there is from one police department to the other that we haven't had a true test of foot patrol since uh, George Kelling's Newark foot patrol experiment, which was you know decades ago, generations ago. I don't know. I don't know if it's a lack of creativity. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there are lots of smart cops out there, to many people's surprise. It just seems like we could do better. But it would require, you know, in that last chapter in Cop in the Hood I talk about, it would work, to some extent, it would require getting away from 911 call and response for police services. That's the huge resource suck. When you have half the police department dedicated to that, a very limited benefit, it's hard to do other things. That requires political support. And as soon as someone gets killed because cops weren't there fast enough, 
the press is going to go after it. It's it's a, almost a scandal waiting to happen. But the truth is, cops often aren't responding quickly enough anyway. This 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 whole I mean, I don't know if you want me to get into it, but I could give a little brief history of how we got here. Yeah, absolutely. The two way radio. It's a technology that. I think came out of World War II and was sort of miniaturized in, uh, in the Vietnam era or maybe Korea. I think it was Detroit had the first police radio, but it was a one-way AM radio. It was just a radio station, and they would broadcast, and anyone could tune in. But there was no way for cops to acknowledge they received their order. <laughs> so when the first radios were – and this is why police cars are sometimes called radio cars, because the radio was so big and bulky, it had to be placed – it needed the power, and the it was so heavy, it needed to be placed in a car. So that became a radio car. And the second cops left the car, they were no longer in radio contact. So the incentive was very much to stay in the car. And that became sort of the prestige unit because often those cars were in horrible shape. They're police cars, but the car was comfortable and had a heater in the winter at least. And then, you know, maybe even a commercial radio. So that became the prestige position. And then the walkie-talkie came into the police world in the late 60s and early 70s. And that really change policing. You know, mostly for the better. Cops today wouldn't go out on the street without a radio. That idea of simply being master of your beat, knowing what was going on, knowing the people, you know, not being able to get back up quickly. It was that's a very different world. And in many ways it was a world that was more brutal and you know, there there's it had negative effects, strong ones as well. But once cops were able to answer radio calls, everything changed. People had phones, and so the idea was it would be more efficient and cops were taken off the beat and placed into cars on the idea that a cop in a car could cover, you know, three times or whatever, four times as much area as a cop on foot. It was efficiency more than crime prevention. And then the idea of cops responding quickly originally was put, the idea was that would eliminate crime. Cops would be on the scene anywhere within three minutes. The problem is it doesn't work. Most people call after a crime is committed. It's interesting even with cell phones, which is a huge change in how people have phones. It still hasn't I'm actually, I don't think anyone's, I'd be curious if the number of calls that are in progress now compared to say 20 years ago before most people had cell phones. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But the end result is that the streets were basically depoliced and cops sat in their cars waiting to respond to a call for service. That was tragic. And then it severed the links between residents and police officers. And it, it changed the nature of policing from maintaining order and community standards and perhaps verbally reprimanding the the miscreants to waiting to respond to the next crisis. I don't think we've ever fully recovered from that, though they said there was great successes made in the 90s in America in, in policing and public safety. So I don't want to discount those. But just, yeah, cops have to be seen as part of almost some, I, I was going to, cops have to be seen as part of the community. I don't like using the word community but that's a separate issue because I don't think there is a single community. There are many, you know, there are residents and different factions and groups and different communities. That's important to remember. I don't like the idea that people in any one area are a singular community because it's not only inaccurate, but it's unfair to the residents. Yeah. Maybe instead of being part of the community, it's police should know the residents that they've been charged with. And policing. I mean, there's that part too, you know? Yeah. To kind of pull apart a few of the things you just said, Again, I have no experience policing, but I recall back to a memory from my youth. I grew up in a suburb in Northern California, and I had gotten a car when I was about, I think, 16 years old, like a lot of suburban teens do. But I always liked walking just from place to place. I I don't know. I I guess I come from a family of walkers. 
And there was this one comment I got from a friend after we had, you know, both gotten our, our used 1990s cars. He saw me walking down the street and he commented to me later, like, dude, why are you walking? You look poor. And I think there's this unfortunate conflation with prestige and having a car, which of course is a very distinctly American thing. I don't think it's as prominent in places like Europe and other countries. And I don't know how you put the shine back on walking the beat. But there was one other thing there that stuck out to me, Peter. If we applied how police officers interact with residents in the 21st century to really any other profession, it would seem strange and even offensive, right? A lot of the ways that we get to know the employees that we, the folks that serve us, let's take a barista, for example, right? There's a coffee shop that I go to often down the street. And one of the reasons that I keep going to that coffee shop beyond the fact that the coffee is good is that it's all the stuff that happens when the coffee isn't being served that gives me a halo effect for liking that coffee shop, if that makes sense. It's getting to know the name of the barista. It's hearing about how their kids are. They showed me a photo of their dog. I'm getting to know them on a day-to-day basis. Six months in, we're asking questions about each other's personal lives while they make me a latte. All that other stuff that's happening while the actual job of the barista is happening, the actual physical making of the latte that I'm actually paying for, it's like that's what keeps me going to that. This, it sounds almost silly, this metaphor that I'm using, but like that's what keeps me going to that coffee shop rather than anywhere else because at the end of the day, I can really get a good espresso almost anywhere in Los Angeles. But it's the fact that I've made those personal connections with that person who is serving me the espresso that makes me like that coffee shop that much more. And I don't understand. I mean, I understand because I, I'm familiar with your work and I've, I've read about this elsewhere. But on an emotional level, I don't understand why this fact doesn't translate to policing, which in my opinion is much more important than serving someone like me an espresso. But it feels like it's all the stuff that happens around the work, not just the physical arrest or pursuing the suspect, but it's everything else that goes around it that engenders the resonance, not the community, I suppose, but the resonance, the people being served, whether it's a latte (laughs) or anything else. You know what I think an underrated attribute in people and definitely in policing is, is curiosity, to be curious about your surroundings. One of the parts of the job I loved was simply seeing into people's lives for a brief moment, you know, because you'd be in people's houses and talking to them. And often the situations weren't the best, but sometimes, you know, it wasn't a particularly dramatic situation. I was fascinated with that because I knew that After I was a police officer, I would not have those connections to East Baltimore. I would have no reason for being there. So I had an excuse, but I was curious. I wanted, I like to know what makes people tick, you know, and and often it involves laughter, even even in traumatic situations. I also, you know, I still remember the name of the woman at Dunkin' Donuts who was best at handling our orders when the shift started at midnight. Her name was Yolanda. And we tried to get her to become a dispatcher because we knew she would have been great because we could see the way she operated, but she couldn't switch jobs because she couldn't take the pay cut. That's what I'm going back to. You get what you pay for to some extent. So you're, just so I'm processing that correctly, she was making more working at a donut shop than she would have had she been a a dispatcher? Yep. Yep. Dispatching is such an important job and so many do a wonderful job, but it's vitally important and it's at the pay is, is horrible for dispatchers and they are controlling the, the, the police department. Basically they're telling people who to go, where to go and why the great book or TV show about dispatch has yet to be written, but it's a fascinating and it's an interesting job. But you'll notice on Twitter that 
cops love giving good dispatchers credit because first of all, they're a companion. It's, you know, you, it's a voice you hear for much of your waking life. So dispatchers with nice voices, just that quality is appreciated. But really it's when the shit hits the fan, your life is in their hands and good ones are lifesavers, literal lifesavers. Yeah. And it's a stressful job. You know, they're dealing with people they know who might get shot or, or killed, you know, on duty, not to mention the, the more routine trauma of the policing world. And the starting salary is always miserable. I mean, I would imagine that the relationship between a dispatcher and the and a police officer is actually quite intimate, right, over time, because the dispatcher is giving the police officer vital information that could make or break how that police officer enters into and handles a situation. Yes. And they also have, someone's got to handle the DOA call, uh, the stinky body. They can also punish you as well. So cops make a point to not have dispatchers hate them. There's a certain art to that, to those radio transmissions. Someone's got to write that book about dispatching. Yeah. Dollars to donuts, the underserved profession of (laughs) police dispatchers. So you ended your career as a police officer, I think in April of 2001. And Cop in the Hood was first published in, I want to say April 2008. Not that it matters. I put in my papers on April 1st. I just remember because it was April Fool's Day. I was there for another month or two. Ah, okay. Well, let the record show. It's a stereotype almost at this point. Anytime someone talks about Baltimore policing to bring up the wire, and I'm fully recognizing that that is a trope, right? But (laughs) I come from film school, and the wire was basically spreading like wildfire through my film school experience when I started it in 2007. Everyone was talking about it because it was, I think, the final season when I started film school. And I suppose it's a testament to the show's depiction of East Baltimore and sort of a fatalistic confirmation of the reality of modern urban policing and your time on the beat. But I kept recalling the series as I read passages from your book. There's a, there's a, a quote from your book that's a little long, but I think it's instrumental and I'd love to share it with the audience. Quote, police officers learn that they're on the streets to serve the needs of the larger war and to make it look as if the battles are being won. Over time, the connections between the war on drugs and the demands placed on police officers become crystal clear. Police attack drug corners as if they were brush fires, stomping out one only to see it flare up again as soon as they move on to the next. People's desire to get high and a stubborn national commitment to drug prohibition provide the fuel. Drug dealers and users are just the kindling. As police cannot get at the source, they do what police do best, lock people up. Our nation's poorest and least wanted are swept off the streets, sorted by the courts, and collected in our jails and prisons, but sooner or later they all come back ready to burn again. End quote. And this quote, it could have been pulled from the mouth of one of the characters on the wire, because this was, this was just a recurring theme over and over again. A police department obsessed with stats, police officers who are losing their morale because they're, they're charged with putting out these brush fires that you talk about. And surely so much of policing can't just be this endless cycle of, of rounding up drug dealers, many of them children that you mentioned, and users while the, the communities, the residents affected receive little, if any, solution-based services. But that seems to be a huge part of what your experience was in the, in the two years that you were on the force. Here's the bad news. It's gotten worse. Now they're not putting out, police are not putting out those brush fires. As futile as it was in the grand scheme of things, it was better than what's going on now, which is simply not policing those corners. And that's a direct result of the death of Freddie Gray, the district elected state's attorney, the prosecutor in Baltimore City, bringing failed prosecution against six of those cops that were there in the death of Freddie Gray. 
those cops chased Freddie from a drug corner. She was a known minor drug deal at a known corner dealing drugs. Ironically, they were giving special attention to that corner because of a request from the prosecutor's office. So they stopped doing that. Okay, if you're going to charge cops with chasing people from drug corners, we won't do it. Fine. And then violence doubled. And the city's gone into a spiral of decline ever since. So that part of the book, to some extent, is dated now. So it's it's bad to say, I wish we, we could return to the futility of the drug war. Uh, but to some extent, as a violence reduction technique, you cannot, can, at just a moral level, you can't allow armed criminals to take over spaces in public. That is not right. And that is, to some extent, what has happened. And more people are getting shot and killed. I mean, I'm still against the drug war. Is there a third way? Well, yeah, regulating drugs, not decriminalizing, not taking away police authority to police people who are at best behaving asocially, but to accept the fact that people, I mean, it was Chris Rock who said people want to get high. Okay. Just make sure that the drugs are pure so they're not dying of fentanyl Mm -hmm. and make sure that they're buying it from someone who isn't enforcing their market share with a gun. It would be such a big improvement. I don't know if we're going to get there. I mean, look, most of America's legalized marijuana, and what do you know, the sky didn't fall. Yeah, maybe just Doritos prices went up, but that's about it. <laughs> What's interesting, I, I don't. people will quickly forget how incomprehensible that was a decade or two ago. It was a took about that time for it to happen. You know, I also, my police research actually started in the Netherlands in Amsterdam. So I saw a different approach to policing drugs, a better approach to policing drugs. We could do what they do. We could do what Portugal does. We, we choose not to. A lot of it is related to our insane gun culture as well. We could reduce violence. It's the first step. But the thing is, often what's the idea that we need treatment and services, which is all another vague thing. What, what exactly does that mean? What if people don't want treatment or services? Uh, what if the treatment and services don't work very well? That has to go hand in hand with policing. It's often seen as sort of a spectrum where you do one rather than the other. No, you, you, it's, a, it's a yes and situation. Police have a role in public order. And yes, we do need those services and treatment for people who want it, and maybe even some form of treatment for people who don't want it. Those are heavy lifts, actually, you know, and also not my field. But the idea that we tolerate the status quo, it's just... And, you know, it's one thing if if people in neighborhoods wanted that status quo, but the residents by and large don't. It's a lot of outsiders often who tell other people what kind of policing they should or shouldn't get. Um, And that goes, you know, back to that over-policed and under-policed metaphor, which really, again, I think it really just, that concept gained traction, I believe, from um, Ghetto Side, uh, the book. But by and large, the problem there is in America, and I mean, I wrote about that in, in Defense of Flogging, uh, there is an over-incarceration problem, mass incarceration problem. But that also needs to be somewhat disaggregated from policing. The prisons are not filled with nonviolent drug offenders. The fundamental question is, is policing more a force for good than evil? And if you believe that policing is noble, albeit flawed, but necessary and even good, you have a very different attitude towards cops and and, and policing and the role of police in society. The problem is right now, and I think the pendulum may be swinging back a bit, but the policing is is bad camp, which is a small minority. It's, you know, it's not, doesn't reflect the majority of any area has gained a lot of political power. And that has contributed to to more violence, 
to less policing and more more violence. It's not. It's funny I, to say that. I can. Well, what do you mean? I mean, if, again, good policing re- prevents crime. That shouldn't be a controversial statement. And the flip side of that is less policing allows it to flourish. Neighborhoods. The, the problem of un- under policing is far greater than the problem of over policing. Quite frankly. And that's why residents in high crime neighborhoods want more policing, more than residents. And you see that in, in poll after, consistently in poll after poll, that black Americans want more policing more than white Americans uh, because they live in neighborhoods where they are more likely to be afraid. Now, they also, people want better policing as well as more policing. Those aren't mutually exclusive. But this idea that has been popularized in, in a disproportionately white progressive environment that, that policing is, is the main problem in minority communities is just disrespectful. It's paternalistic. It's wrong. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the harms are quite real. And that's, that's kind of the tragedy around it. You asked about The Wire. It was a great show. I need to watch it again. I haven't watched it really since it came out. But it actually kept me psychologically connected to Baltimore and policing in the time between when I quit and when I finished writing my book. I was actually a bit conscious to make sure I wasn't subconsciously stealing the wire. (laughs) Uh, That would be a a fatal, inexcusable flaw as an academic to put in an anecdote. Someone goes, hey, actually, that was season two of The Wire. Oops. (laughs) It was by far more realistic than any other cop show ever made. Not 100%. It wasn't trying to be 100% real. Uh, but certainly from the police officer perspective, it was 75-80% real. And the parts that weren't real were often had a greater point specifically against the the drug war that David Simon was trying to put in there. And that, you know, that was great. At the time, I said that show was actually too negative portrayed. A, as time has passed, uh, I think David Simon was right and I was wrong given the scandals that have hit Baltimore and the Baltimore Police Department. I, I just didn't see those some of the darker elements of of the police and political culture uh, while I was there. It seems like what it captured and what you've spoken on is a top down obsession with stats, a kind of fatalistic resignation that change is impossible because change is discouraged from the top down, and that any kind of experimentation, if the experimentation isn't one hundred percent or near one hundred percent effective, is squashed. Right. It's sort of what you were speaking about earlier on in our conversation, which is there isn't a lot of flexibility for police officers to try new things, either because of union agreements or because there's just not the political will. And you see this kind of play out in the wire over and over again. And it's it's something that you spoke about in the book as well. And I think if you you kind of tie officers hands and police department's hands to be able to try new things, all you get is this kind of endless cycle of either trying the same thing over and over again or stopping it entirely. (laughs) It's either, oh, we're we're just going to keep putting out brush fires over and over and over again, or we won't put out any brush fires ever, the end, and violence skyrockets. You know, normally I play the role of the cynical person. Everyone wants me to be more optimistic, but let me give you a little bit of hope. And I think it's important to remember this, despite all the problems and yeah, you know, it's a joke that the two things that police officers hate is change and the status quo. But <laughs> things were getting better, and that's important to remember. As dysfunctional as 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 these organizations may be, up through 2015 in Baltimore, um, there were basically 10 to 15 years of progress. And by progress, I mean murders were down, crime was down, complaints against police went down, police-involved shootings went down, arrests were down. In New York City in the 90s, you saw, again, murders decrease 80%. And when that happens, police-involved shootings also go down. Arrests, though they initially went up in New York, arrests went down. Everything that people 
care about, it seems, at least that we can quantify, had gotten better. And we kind of threw all that away. That's enough optimism for me. Uh, <laughs> but it's important to remember that actually, you no know, things, things were getting better. If the goal is perfection, we're doomed. But in Baltimore, too, the population in 20, until the riots in 2015, the population of Baltimore had started going up for the first time in 50 or 60 years. Um, I remember when I visited in 2014, you know, at that point, I'd been going to the city for 15 years. It was the first time I said, you know what, Baltimore looks better. Immigrants were moving in and there was less crime and violence. I, you know, things were looking up and then, and then it all went to hell. You know, in New York City, and there's different cities and they're for different reasons and you know, New York City, when violence went down in the 90s, it also went down after 2010. There was kind of a middle decade where things stayed the same. Poverty increased while crime was going down? Poverty in New York actually increased. There were more people in poverty in 2000 than 1990, young men in particular. Inequality increased. I mention that because this idea that we, we really need to reduce, we have, you know, to focus on the social issues, by all means, focus on the social issues, but no, we don't need to focus on the social issues to prevent violence. It's fascinating to me. What I'm currently working on now is a oral history of that crime drop from police officers' perspective who are on the job. Because when I started it, I just thought it was interesting. Now it might actually be relevant. But the idea that, that violence is so intersected with all these other factors, no, it's not. If you want, as I, I think I'm stealing this line from Thomas Apt. I want to give him credit for it. But if you want to focus on violence, focus on violence. Don't be distracted. We're dealing with a tiny number of people in any neighborhood, frequent, repeat, violent offenders. If you focus on them, you'll reduce violence. That how you focus on them, of course, the devil's always in the details, easier said than done. But to some extent, it is that simple. But we lack the political will. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the reports that I'm I've been reading over the last year or two when it comes to things like bail reform is it really does seem like the point you just made, it is the problem, right? It seems like the crime is being committed by repeat offenders who have rap sheets that are dozens of incidents long, but it's, it's their release back into the population, either on bail or, or abridged sentences that oftentimes kind of terrorizes the very neighborhoods that would, I think, prefer to be free of this kind of violence. It doesn't seem, and I, and, and I think this is important, and, I, and maybe it's a bit tangential, but I really want to nail this home. I think you're familiar with what I'm about to say here, this discourse that these neighborhoods are, are just ridden with violence, right? And people who aren't familiar with neighborhoods, and, I, and I'm really speaking specifically here about majority black urban neighborhoods, right? I think there's a stereotype that these neighborhoods are quote unquote violent, and that's really not true. And what I mean by that is, it's a disservice to paint an entire swath of a population as violent when really what the issue is, and this is why I think some of these reform efforts are so upsetting to me, is that it's a fraction of a fraction of a percent of people within these neighborhoods who are repeat offenders who are causing most of the violence and the disorder. It's not the vast majority of people living in these neighborhoods who just want to get on with their lives and have better opportunities, but it's repeat offenders who are being let out over and over and over again, who are to say it bluntly, terrorizing these neighborhoods. It's a shame when this stuff gets conflated to make it seem like entire neighborhoods are violent when that is the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah, there was an incident recently near me in Queens where a woman was killed by a... She was not the intended target. She was shot and killed. And the progressive city council person finally issued a statement. And he said that the Woodside community... The Woodside House's community needs to put down their guns... And he also, he wouldn't use the word shooter. He talked about like gun involved individual. My God, we can't even say shooter anymore. But I thought, 
it actually, I was like, why, what is funny about this statement? First of all, he didn't even mention the victim's name, but, and I said, maybe he really believes that this is a violent community. I don't know. Um, but what a weird thing to say, because no, the residents don't need to put down their guns. About a dozen kids do. That's it. We're talking about 12 people having a feud with the Astoria houses. But I don't know. Maybe he thinks this whole community is violent. Um, he doesn't need their votes. He doesn't go there, I don't think. So that might be a problem. Yeah, I, I still don't believe this. You know, maybe violence is good for some politicians. They're, they don't. There doesn't seem to be any political accountability when violence goes up. But, uh, you know, if it allows them to highlight unjust society, you know, maybe they can benefit from it. And I don't think that's a – I'm not cynical enough yet to say that's a conscious choice. But these communities are diverse and residents often live in fear. Now, to say that there aren't incredibly violent neighborhoods, I mean, one of the shocking stats that was true – when I wrote my book about 2000, and it's unfortunately even more true today, in the area I police, there are nine police districts in Baltimore, so the population now is like, of the city is 580,000. So roughly it's that divided by nine. More, more than 10% of men are murdered in their lifetime. In this neighborhood? It, it's a collection of neighborhoods. You know, it's a large, it's, it's, it, the population is, is, I think it's, I don't know what, I'm sure it's dropped again. You know, it's about 40,000, 45,000. But you see that in, in neighborhoods in the south and west side of Chicago as well. You see, I mean, in a lot of cities have these neighborhoods where, so that level of violence, it's not saying, that, yeah, this goes along with everyone that the community is diverse and most people want nothing to do with this. But my God, that's a lot of people getting shot and killed. You know, it's a leading cause of death up through age, you know, 40. But I do think, just to, to yes and you here, Peter, I do think it's important. I think I'm agreeing with your larger point here. It's important for when people have discussions about this stuff on a kind of national level to disaggregate what that 10% stat from what is really happening on the ground, which I know you have experience with, right? It's not like these kids are, and you're not saying this at all, but I think some people hear these stats and they're like, oh, well, these kids are born violent or this community is inherently violent. But the problem is, is that without good policing and society solutions, these children are often born into situations that are often violent. And then they are left with a choice of whether or not to join a gang for their own self-protection or not. But I, I think that the way that we talk about the subject. You know, your caveat, your caveat is interesting. And, and yes, I, I, I agree. And no, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I wouldn't say those things and don't believe those things. But it's interesting that you have to say that caveat because I think one of the problems is we as society still don't have the language to talk about these issues. Um, so people don't, they opt out. Look, when stupid racists or Trumpian right wingers, you know, say crazy false stuff, I'm very happy to say that you're both wrong and crazy and racist. But it's not that I don't care what they say because I'm worried about them. But just let me just say, you know, no, I don't care what they say. They're not entities in this world. They don't control the policy. They don't live there. They're, yes, they're using it for nefarious means, but that's not a reason not to care. I think that is the problem is because I don't want to, I don't want to go there because racists will use it the wrong way. Well, fuck them. I don't know what to say. Let them, racist going to racist. <laughs> and by not talking about it, you do sort of leave a, a void in a vacuum to some of those evil voices out there. I don't concern myself with that. I mean, I do a little bit because I don't want what I say to be misinterpreted. Um, there's certain interviews I will decline based on who the audience is. Of course. Yeah. You don't want to be used as a mouthpiece. 
Yeah, yeah. But my point is, I do care, and a lot of people I know care. And so I don't even know if we can move beyond it, but just ignore that background noise. So let's figure out what we can do <laughs> to, 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 to so, so fewer people are shot. Yes. Yeah, no, no, people aren't born violent, and no, it's not a predator class and all that stuff. But I wish we would talk about issues about people talk, you know, it's not about two parent families. I'm talking about one parent families. What do we do about children who essentially have no parent? It's not common, but the kids who have no parent, no functional parent raising them are very likely doomed. What do you do if your mom doesn't love you and is also addicted and perhaps turning tricks and shunts you off to, you know, and you're abused? I mean, that's the tragedy. And that's, you know, that goes beyond policing, of course. But those are the issues we need to address. It's not people who are just struggling, the day-to-day struggles. That's something else. One of the things that shocked me as a cop really was the abject poverty. You know, you walk into a house that's got no electricity, it's got kids on a dirty mattress, and you know, you refer to social services. I don't know what I don't know what what happens after that, but you just it's I'm sure a few of those kids will be successful, but you know, statistically the odds are slim and and you see it at a it does start young. Yes. And I spoke with Rob Henderson in a previous episode of this about the foster care system and his biography. And and he grew up in the foster system. There's a lot of basically luck and there, but for the grace of God, go he, why he wasn't scooped up in, and I think I'm getting the stat correctly, 60% of boys in foster care eventually spend some amount of time in jail. And it's a mind boggling statistic to hear. But I think that the important thing And I don't really care what racists say, but I think what is important is that for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the work of policing or how communities become the way they become, is for people to understand that like police departments, people respond to incentives, right? And so if the incentive for you as a child, right, is to join a gang, let's say, right, because that's the best incentive for you as a 12 or 13 year old, it's a similar situation to how police officers respond to the incentives or lack of incentives to do foot patrolling or do more quote unquote community based policing or to switch from brush fires to other potentially more effective methods. Human beings are human beings and we respond to the incentives we're given that are either structural, communal, etc. And I think that how this all kind of comes together, Peter, is that it's it's all kind of this cycle that is feeding each other between the residents of a community, the police officers, and how they interact with each other and the incentives they're given to do what they do. And I think that that's just important to kind of pull apart. You know, it's, it's interesting to actually hear the quotes from my book since I wrote it a long time ago. <laughs> there is a level of humanity still, sometimes buried in cops, but there still is a level of humanity and caring. Cops generally go into the go into the job for the right reason, or even if you know, it wasn't a calling for me, I never planned on being a cop. At least just have professional pride in doing the right thing. It's nice when you can help people even in a little way, even if just making the worst day of their life a little better. All cops, it brings them joy. Some cops do it more than others, mind you, and it does sometimes get buried in a layer of, of cynicism and despair. But I don't miss most of the job. I want to kind of make that clear. I have a better job as a professor now, and it's a safer job. But it's rare to have, but I, but I, I do miss being able to help people. And sometimes that person may simply, you know, when I say help someone, back when drug corners were cleared, you know, I didn't take the war on drugs personally, but I often thought if I lived on this block and had to get up in the morning to go to work, what would I want me to do, me being a police officer? And often the job was just shut these kids up. 
it's not the drug dealing, it's the fact that they're a public nuisance. It's the fact that it's also a party. I think you've referred to it as quality of life policing in some respects. Yeah, not which there's also, you know, record. sort of cops have been moving away from that by design. Yeah, just make make the resident, let, let people get a good night's sleep. You know what? I could do that. <laughs> that was something that was full, I, f- firmly within my power. And I, I, you know, I didn't have to arrest anybody to do that. I, but I, people say policing is a verb. I had to police. And you'd clear the corner. And, you know, it was not a long-term solution. And I eventually kind of get tired of clearing the same corner night after night. But but you know what? It was a short-term solution. <laughs> and if that allowed someone to get a good night's sleep and then do better at work, you know, the benefits can trickle down. And some also might argue that it's bad for those kids to be slinging on the corner, you know, and be very, very likely be involved in the next shooting, either a shooter or, or shootee. So, you know, there was a lot of good coming from it. And if I can can pull one more relevant quote from your book to read it back to you, but more specifically the reader, because I think it is directly relevant to what you just said. And it's from your afterward, quote, one time a woman was leaving her house before dawn. This is you speaking. She saw me and a partner and was practically overcome with emotion. Quote, God bless you too, like angels in blue. Thanks for all your work. It's so good to see you out here, end quote. And then you say, on duty, it was the nicest compliment I ever received, end quote. Yeah, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to read that because I think it's directly relevant to what you said. And I think it's important. I, the irony, of course, is we were walking not as some great crime prevention neighborhood improvement plan. That was a, that was a beneficial side effect. We were just walking for exercise. For a while, we had a little routine where um, uh, we'd walk four miles in an hour. We had a, we had a route mapped out for the distance. Mm-hmm. And we'd purposefully pick quiet times because we had to make sure we weren't called into service. So we'd, tell the dis- we'd call the dispatcher and say, look, we're going to be walking foot, just so you know we're not goofing off. But if you can avoid giving us a call for routine backup or something, please do that. You know, And we'd generally do it in the quiet hour between you know 4 and 5 a.m. But the end result is it's the middle of winter, and these two cops are walking the beat at 4.30 in the morning. And that's, you know, that's when she came out of her house. I like to think again, even though it wasn't our primary goal, that we did do some good by circling those those walks four times every night. And it was also great. I mean, I can, it's funny because it's been so long, but I can still picture that moment of her walking out of her house and the stoop she was on. And yeah, it was, all she wanted to do was, <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know what work she was going to, but it was a, starting at an hour I don't want my job to start at. Uh, and she was thrilled to see us. Yeah. All this talk about the difference between how citizens interact with police when they're walking the beat versus when they're in their cars. It reminds me of a study I read years ago that has nothing to do with policing, but I think it is relevant here, was about road rage and how oftentimes we get more viscerally angry, say things we wouldn't say, act in ways we wouldn't act when we're in our cars, specifically because there's something that happens in our brains when we can't see the other person and instead disembody them as the car when we lose connection with the physical person inside and instead see the car as the object of our disdain, there's something very visceral that happens in our brain that doesn't happen if we're just seeing the actual physical human being. And this is true for me, right? Like when I'm in traffic and someone cuts me off or something, and I can get pretty blue, <laughs> so to speak. But if someone were to cut me off on the sidewalk as I'm walking, now I'll take it more in stride. It'll be a little frustrating, but I'm not going to start using every single curse word that I can remember at them. Ah, clearly you're not a New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from a more laid back California environment. But I I do think that that's that's directly relevant. No, what you're saying is true. 
my family is also a family of walkers, as is yours, and I don't own a car. It's interesting. My brother doesn't own a car. He lives in Amsterdam. It's easier from there. But what are the odds that two kids from Evanston, Illinois would grow up in neither? The only time I owned a car was in Baltimore because I needed one as a cop to like get to court. So it was interesting for me to spend so much time in a car there. Um, you do develop a, a windshield perspective. And somewhere I wrote, maybe in the book, you know, the cops know the timing of lights better than they know the functioning of, of commuters, you know, taking the bus. Yeah. Had that woman saw us drive by in a car, well, I, I have no idea how she would have felt, but she certainly would not have given us that compliment. Cars do change your perspective to your immediate environment. There's not crime happening in the police car. You know, it's happening out <laughs> on the streets. But there's also this idea of, I learn more walking those exercise miles than I would have in a car. You know, it's not just psychological. That's part of it. You don't hear things when you're in a car because you have to overcome the, even with the windows down, you have to overcome the car noise. When you're walking, you're silent. Walk up on drug dealers on foot and they were shocked, but you could get close <laughs> to them. We're in a car, right. which is faster. You, the response, you know, you were just spotted much earlier by a lookout. Also, walking is good for you. There have, not recently, but there have been studies showing that, you know, what you said before is, yeah, cops, there's a prestige to it that we just have to overcome. Partly, look, it's a job where workers will follow orders. You're just going to say, you're, if you took away the cars, you could just do it by fiat. What studies have shown, and these are older studies now, but is once, despite initial reluctance, well, first of all, some people would volunteer because they would see the benefit. So immediately you could get those. Cops end up feeling safer on foot. Your target in a car potentially does create, you know, there's horrible tragedy of cops in New York assassinated a few years ago in a car. So they ended up putting like some bullet resistant shield on car windows. And, you know, how instead, instead of, of getting, yeah, instead of how about getting out of the car? Well, I would also just to kind of yes and your point here, Peter, and let me know if, if uh, your thoughts on this. When I'm walking through my neighborhood, or specifically, and actually this is, this is, I think this is probably a more relevant example. When I'm walking through a new neighborhood, whether I'm on vacation or just in a part of Los Angeles I've never been before, which isn't that many neighborhoods anymore, I can feel the rhythms of that neighborhood and understand and learn about that neighborhood in a way that I can't if I'm in my car. And it's not just because I'm going faster in a car. There's something that's happening in the air and how it's interacting with my senses. I can feel the rhythms of that neighborhood in a way and get a more holistic understanding of how that neighborhood functions and what it sounds like, what it smells like and feels like. And this is just me as a tourist, right? That's a great way to phrase it, by the way, to feel the rhythms of the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, that, and that is paraphrasing Jane Jacobs again when she described the oh. <laughs> functioning of life in, in Greenwich Village 50, 60 years ago. But I would imagine, just to wrap up my point here to, and hand it off to you, I imagine that's even. And, and maybe uh, Jacobs mentions this, that's even more valuable as a police officer because if you've walked that neighborhood enough times and you know the rhythms of it, you know when something's off. Like if you know what the rhythms feel like when something is going right and nothing bad is about to happen or happening, you will instantly know when something's off. Whereas if you've never walked that neighborhood, I imagine you wouldn't know what it feels like if something is good or bad. Yeah. Walkers know this. You feel the rhythm of the neighborhood. You will get a vibe. Also, it allows you to, you know, even just walk, even just parking half a block away and walking up to a scene gives you a lot of information, you know, and cops are taught to do that and they rarely do it. Just that little bit even on foot can tell you the immediate situation. Probably the worst. Now, look, I don't want to divide any, the world into criminals and non-criminals because we all commit some crimes and some are more important than others. And some people get caught more than others. I, there's a lot of gray, but that said, probably the worst thing for police community relations is when cops 
treat non-criminals as if they're criminal. And then that person thinks, God, if that's yes. how they treat me, imagine how mm -hmm. they treat the criminals. Well, actually the exact same way. That's just how the cop treats everybody. But to make those distinctions, and again, they're not hard and fast and bad people can do good things and good people can do bad things, to notice that, oh, well, this kid is obviously going to school based on dress, demeanor, presentation of self. Just understand, you know, it doesn't, who knows, maybe it's a school kid who just shot somebody, but I doubt it. You know, understand that that's a school kid. A year or two ago when there was a LA Times did a piece about uh, racial disproportions and car stops and uh in a high violence neighborhood, and then they stopped doing car shops, car stops, and um, and then what do you know? Violence went up, but it was very targeted on gang members. But I remember the article, which was a gang member, was complaining that he was getting stopped because he was a gang member. <laughs> That's what cops are so like. You're you are you're admitted a gang member, but you're presenting yourself as a gang member. I would hope cops are giving you a little extra special attention. I mean, in a legal yeah, and constitutional, there's some reasonable manner. suspicion there. Yeah, but yes, I want cops to. Being a gang member itself is not doesn't give you reasonable suspicion for a stop, but it certainly can give you suspicion for further observation that might but might lead to that. I mean, again, no, you know, walking around too, you know, you don't treat everybody equally. As I like to, you can sort of positively profile. I don't know who might mug me, but I can guarantee you some people who aren't going to mug me. And when you're walking, you know, the streets of a neighborhood you don't know, and you're looking for danger, well, you know, a seventy year old woman with a walker is not a threat to you. You can continue on your way or focus on other things. I mean, cops do make those judgments all the time and they have to do it in a way that is legal and constitutional and, and you know, not profiling based on race. But of course, you're supposed to focus on active criminals. Often you know them by name. It's not, you know, it's because you've arrested them for that crime before. One of the crimes with the highest recidivism is burglary. It's like burglars just can't stop. So when a burglar gets out of prison, if they're in prison, you know, and suddenly houses are hit again. Yes, you should maybe knock on that person and see if they have anything to say. I mean, that's what the job is about, trying to connect these dots and do so in a way that, you know, is least harmful, definitely where the benefits outweigh that harm. But it's, yeah, it's, it's learning the rhythm of the neighborhood. And also when residents see that cops understand that too, that's another way that then that resident is more likely to, to talk to the cop and tell them things, little things. I mean, I remember, yeah, once in one situation, and the details aren't too important, but there are very f few things that are just straightforward. And, you know, in the police world, everyone's pretty much everyone's lying to you to some extent, and you're never getting the complete story. But I remember asking somebody else uh, in the building, because I happened to, I knew him only from saying hello, and he was, had his own criminal issues. But I, somehow we had a pleasant nodding uh, relationship, you know, where we'd nod at each other and say hi. I think his name was Reggie. I was like, Reggie, what's the real story here? And he just told me, you know, and it involved some drugs and some prostitution and, and, and some, you know, it was a, it was a squabble, but I said, you know, thanks. It's a good starting point for me. But I remember the other cop turned to me that I was with and was like, why did, why did he just tell, tell you all that? I was like, I don't know, me and Reggie, we get along. All you can do is, is try and create an environment where that type of thing happens more. And, and that I think comes through, you know, these sort of informal, human contacts and on the part of cops curiosity and maybe some people just don't have it you know maybe you and i are different and from other people in our joy of sort of walking around neighborhoods we don't know and just seeing seeing the life that is there but enough people do have that i think that you have to create you have to create a work environment that allows that to thrive and what the, you know the ways you do that in part are not 
you know, giving cops discre- giving them discretion to uh, a little leeway on how they do their work. Of course, it, it's that it's the slave to the radio problem. It's not just that cops don't want to walk foot, though most don't in the current system. It's that they can't because they have to be available to answer calls. So they have to be, they're basically tethered to their car, uh, which is an irony since that walkie-talkie was designed to make cops free from the car radio. But in reality, they're still tethered to it. And that, that creates a real problem. Yes, it does. Uh, that's very well said. And Peter, you and I spoke about this a, a bit before we started recording, but I want to be sensitive to your time. You know, there are so many topics that I'd love to talk with you about, whether it's Sir Robert Peel's Nine Principles of Policing, which you talk about in your book. Which he never wrote, by the way. That's an error I wish I had corrected earlier because it's much, not from my book, but it's much cited and he never actually wrote those nine principles, but in spirit he did. But anyway, I'm a quibbler for facts like that. and that's. But we can talk about that next time. Yeah, that'd be really wonderful. And I really also want to dig in to your report, Two Shades of Blue, Black and White in the Blue Brotherhood, because I thought a lot of the, the stuff that you pulled apart, how black police officers and white police officers view themselves and their job as police, how they view the communities that they're charged with policing. That's a lot of really interesting stuff there. And and last but not least, you're provocatively titled In Defense of Flogging, which is an examination of our criminal justice system and potential alternatives to long-term incarceration. I think these would all be great avenues to explore with you. And I've never done a part two on this podcast before, but I think that this is it's such an interesting topic of conversation. Do you think that article would have been a good chapter? That article, and it's interesting that you found it, that was originally going to be a chapter in the book, and my editor and I decided it just didn't quite fit. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I saw it as a footnote in the book, and I tracked it down. And as a quick preview for the listener, it's a January 2008 research paper. And In it, you say from your research, quote, black police officers are more inclined to see their role as protecting the good people, their quote, while white police officers place greater emphasis on arresting criminals. Both black and white police officers see the police administration and departmental discipline processes unfairly biased against their own respective race, which I thought was a really interesting finding. And morale differs by race with higher morale among black police officers. I'd be curious to explore whether that's still the case in, in 2021. But I found so many interesting statistics and tidbits, I guess you could say, about how both black and white police officers experience the job. This is all to say, Peter, and to the listener, that there's so much more I'd love to talk with you about. If you'll have me, I'd love to continue this in a part two shortly, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I love an interesting discussion. And also, I applaud you. And I've since you invited me on, as I've been listening to your podcast, but I also appreciate that you come prepared and have, have specific questions to ask. Um, don't think that, please don't think that time you spent <laughs> is wasted. It's, it's much appreciated. No, not at all. I try not to talk about myself or my methods too much, but I'm drawn to people who I believe provide really interesting perspectives on important topics. I first was introduced to you and your work through some podcast interviews that I watched of yours. I do not want to regurgitate <laughs> the, potentially the same questions that you might get on other podcasts or in other interviews. But there's so much to dig in with you, Peter. As soon as we stop recording, we'll schedule another one. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, at least for part one, the the question that I ask every guest at the end of the episode. And I think actually it directly ties into a lot of what what we've been discussing and how police officers can better connect with the residents in the neighborhoods they serve. So here's the final question to wrap us out. As individuals, we're limited in our time and our energy and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person 
every other group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So, Peter, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? You know, I've heard you ask that question to your other guests, and I was like, oh man, I have time to prepare. And then I totally forgot. Unrelated to anything we have spoken about, I would say right now the people to have empathy for are refugees and asylum seekers from Syria and um, Afghanistan. They need our help, and we're not giving it to them. And that's a shame because nobody benefits from not giving them help, not us, not them. I would focus on that. Well said. Yeah, and timely. Thank you for that answer, Peter. And thank you so much for your time and your work. And I'm looking forward to having you on for part two. 